This is Jody Rudoran, Editor-in-Chief of The Forward. I recently had the opportunity to interview Ambassador Deborah Lipstadt at the Texas Tribune Festival. Ambassador Lipstadt, a Holocaust historian of great renown, has recently become the U.S. envoy to monitor and combat anti-Semitism. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Thank you so much for coming, and welcome to the Texas Tribune Festival. I'm Jody Rudoran. I'm editor-in-chief of The Forward, which we like to say is the leading Jewish voice in American journalism. I am so excited to be here for this conversation with Ambassador Lipstadt. She is the nation's preeminent Holocaust historian, a longtime professor at Emory University, and perhaps most famous for her incredible heroic legal battle against a Holocaust denier who sued her for defamation. You may remember that became a major motion picture, Denial. Um, and since May, she has been the State Department's special envoy to clo combat global anti-Semitism. She's the first in that role to carry the title ambassador. So I love talking to people who are new in their jobs, because my favorite things I learned while covering Israel was this line from Ariel Sharon, who famously said, upon becoming prime minister, what you see from here, you don't see from there. Um, and like Sharon, you certainly had a lot of experience in this field before getting this gig. Um, you've been studying and researching anti-Semitism really your whole life, fighting about it, thinking, fighting against it, thinking and talking about it. And now in these months as ambassador, I'm wondering, what do you see from here that you didn't see from there? What have you learned? Oh, I've learned not to tweet in the middle of the night. <laughs> um, I've learned a lot of things. You know, you've known me for a long time. I've written for you very frequently and for other publications. I'd go to sleep at night musing about a news story. I'd, I'd read something right before I went to sleep or whatever. And by 10 o'clock the next morning, I was sending it in to be edited by you, by one of your editors, by and other newspapers, if I didn't want, if I somehow you didn't want it, I'd send it to the Times, you know, uh, um, or the po right, or the Post, or whatever. Um, and now it's a different story. I work collaboratively. I work in a very big building, a very big bureaucracy, and uh, there's a saying in Jewish tradition: you can't make Shabbos for yourself. You know, you can't decide I'm going to have Shabbos at this hour or I'm going to have it on Tuesday. Shabbos begins at a certain time, ends at a certain time. Um, traditionally, uh, whatever you do, but I mean, that was, you know, and, and I don't make foreign policy. I work as part of a team. I work as a team, and many of the things I write about, if I write about a certain country, there's a desk and a bureau that handles that country, as you well know, and I want to work collaboratively with them uh, so that, A, I'm reflecting policy or my policy is is integrated into the larger policy um and that we speak with with one voice so for you know professors i don't know if there are any professors here or former professors yeah so we are a terrible bunch a we think we know everything uh even if our field is ancient you know medieval art we think we can comment on contemporary politics and have a uh, a better opinion than someone else um, and uh, if we work for a solid university, we have the best of the entrepreneurial and corporate world. Corporate world, we know we're going to get a salary. We know our uh, uh, benefits and our insurance will be paid. But entrepreneurial, we teach what we want and we write what we want. Uh, well, now I'm a little more limited in that. But on the other hand, um, I have a much bigger megaphone. 
you know, I, people ask me after the trial, after the, the uh, trial in London, and then especially after the movie came out, how has it changed you? And it didn't change me at all. I said it just gave me a bigger megaphone. People pay more attention. Well, now I have an even bigger one, and I'm more careful about how I use it. So um, that's, that's something I've learned. Um, I've also learned that um, while much of my job is combating anti-Semitism, um, speaking out, uh, and when I speak out, I'm speaking out in the voice of the United States government, which is a very profound um, responsibility and honor. Um, but there's, there, there are other things that I've learned that uh, with the Abraham Accords, you know, my, you know that because you covered it. My first trip abroad was to Saudi Arabia, when my team and I have a wonderful team at the state, which department. you'd never been to before. As a no, <laughs> no, uh, not at all, not at okay. all, not at all, not having to land there or anything. And when my team said to me, "Where do you want?" Because you travel, you go overseas, you you spread the word. Um, I said, I'd really like to start in the Gulf, and they assumed UAE, um, because already there was the Abraham Accords or, or Bahrain. I said, yeah, I'd like to go to those places, but I'd really like to go to Saudi Arabia. Because Saudi Arabia, many of you will know this, was for many, many years the main purveyor of uh, anti-Semitism in the Muslim world. It's not that they sat and had an office, let's send out anti-Semitism. Um, but you know, they would, they would fund the imams who would go to Brighton, and I don't mean Brighton where you, you know, in Brooklyn, you live I think in New Jersey. But um, that's maybe they're not supposed to know that. I don't know. It's okay. <laughs> um, Brighton. Uh, uh, or Brighton in England or, uh, or Brighton in Brighton or uh, Berlin or Brussels or a city that doesn't begin with a B, whatever. Um, and they didn't send these imams out to preach anti-Semitism, but if they preached anti-Semitism, that was part of the, that was okay. And many Muslims were radicalized by that. That's changing. We knew it was changing. Um, and uh, we knew that uh, anti-Semitism in the Friday sermons in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia was weighed down. So I said, there's something good going on here. Um, and I made a commitment to myself that even though I may not like certain things about countries in every country, including my own, they're things, I'm you know, a great critic of everything, um, uh, that, that I was gonna go and talk to anyone who was serious about addressing anti-Semitism. And I was gonna do that for two reasons, A, because I think it lessens anti-Semitism, and that's good, for the, particularly for the, those who are impacted by it, Jews or people who think that th those people are Jews. Um, and B, because I truly believe that if you stop othering one group, there's a possibility, not a guarantee, but there's a strong possibility that you'll stop othering another group. So it could have a domino effect in them. So that's why I chose Saudi Arabia. I think you just came up with a great tagline for yourself. Deborah Lipstadt, a great critic of everything. Um, Be my epitaph, you know. So I want to ask you about that trip, because from Saudi Arabia, you then went to... I went to Israel. I, and I, I thought you did Israel, then Saudi, well, and then I, Argentina. I did, I no? did a, Saudi Arabia, then I flew to Israel via... 
Abu Dhabi, which is like going from uh, Philadelphia to Washington via Chicago, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and then from Israel went to UAE. And then I was supposed to come home for five days, change wardrobes, change seasons, and go to Argentina and Chile. Argentina, because it was the, the 28th anniversary of the bombing of the AMIA, the JCC building, um, which, of course, destroyed the JCC. But many, like in many JCCs, other Jewish organizations yeah. had their offices there. And 84 people, not all of them Jews, but 84 people were killed and hundreds were maimed. Um, and I had been asked by the American ambassador who felt it was really important to be an American presence at this. But on my next to last night in the UAE, when I was going from Abu Dhabi back to my hotel in Dubai, I got about 11 o'clock at night, I got a phone call from my office saying that they had just been called by the White House and POTUS, the president, uh, wanted me to join him in Israel where he was flying to. Um, so instead I went to Israel and then I went straight to South America. So you wanna hear a funny story? Wardrobe. I said, I'm willing to go, but I'm here, you know, I'm in the Gulf. And he, uh, I, in fact, the Assistant Secretary of Near Eastern Affairs said to me, um, Deborah, you know, the, the word in the building is you're one of our smarter appointees, six books, whatever, dot, dot, dot. Can you explain to me why you're going to Saudi Arabia in July? <laughs> kind of like going to Austin yeah, in that's September. Yeah, that's sort of not worse, you know. Um, I said to make a point. But I had linen, you know, and you have to dress also modestly, but I had linen clothing and stuff. Not for Argentina in July where it's winter. So I had a good friend of mine get the keys to my apartment in Washington. And, so, and, they, and I said, she didn't FaceTime me, she FaceTimed my closet. That jacket, those pants, that, that, and she packed it up and brought it to my deputy who lives nearby. He brought it to the office, and the uh, staff person was accompanying me. We called it Operation Winter Wardrobe. So, <laughs> these, are, these are staff amenities that you don't have at Emory, right? right? right. So, but right. I don't get asked by POTUS to go when, to right, right. by the president. I wanted to ask you about the, that kind of what feels like a real contrast. I'm interested in, so what is the difference in the kind of nature of anti-Semitism you're fighting in Saudi Arabia, in the UAE, in the Gulf, and in places like Argentina and Chile today? It's a, it's a great question. Look, in some of these Gulf countries, there's a real willingness to address this issue and to, um, and to maybe not to acknowledge that we were purveyors of it in the past, but to say we want to take this seriously. And that doesn't mean they're ignoring the geopolitical crisis, Israel-Palestine, Israeli-Palestinian, however you want to call it, however you want to describe it, um, in, in the Middle East. They're very much aware of it, and they're very much concerned about it. But they feel that that is separate and apart, or they're beginning to see that that is separate and apart from anti-Semitism. And I did meet some people in Saudi Arabia, the... Uh, um, People at the embassy and at the consulate in Jeddah, I was both in Riyadh and Jeddah, were very, did some very smart programming and had me meet people who were less enthusiastic. The younger people, by the way, that I met, and I met some fantastic younger people, especially in the media. I was, spent a lot of time with the uh, Saudi Media Research Group, which publishes about, I think, 20 news. It's the largest uh, publication uh, conglomerate in the, in the kingdom in Saudi Arabia. Um, but some people weren't entirely aboard, aboard this issue. And, and one imam said to me, well, 
this problem will be solved when Israel solves the Palestinian, there'll be no anti-Semitism, Israel only solved the uh, Palestinian crisis. And I'm thinking, hmm, as I started, I think there was anti-Semitism before there was an Israel, before there was a Zionist movement, before there was a Herzl, before there was a Borokhov answer. Um, I said, but I don't think that that's the right approach to take. So instead, I said to him, in my country after 9-11, uh, there was a surge, not an uptick, but a surge in hatred, fear of Muslims. So much so, and you know this, uh, I don't, you weren't in New York then, but you, maybe you were, I'm not sure, um, that when uh, the Muslim community wanted to build a, a Muslim yeah. community center and a mosque near Ground Zero, New York City, which I like to describe as the polygot capital of the United States, refused permission. Yeah. And I said, I thought that was a mistake. I thought that was a mistake. Why should a Muslim who works down in Battery Park not have access to a mosque because there were Muslims who committed this terrible tragedy? And this man said to me, you're absolutely right. There is no connection between that. The people who knocked down that building were wrong. I said, well, that's the analogy with anti-Semitism. You can have feel one way or the other about what's going on um, in terms of Israel and the Palestinians, but anti-Semitism is, an, is another issue. And, and many Saudis that I met saw that. Great. So a few years ago when I first met Jonathan Greenblatt, who's the head of the Anti-Defamation League, the nation's premier fighter of anti-Semitism, Outside of you, um, I would. I joked with him that he was. This was in 2019. I joked that like since he'd taken over, it seemed like there was anti-Semitism everywhere. So he must be doing a very good job. And um, I would say that's true for you too. It seems like we've got. I'm a in lot a growth of, industry. We're in a growth industry, right? And you know, it's a joke, but there's some serious. I have a serious question about this, which is we hear politicians and Jewish organizations and individual Jews often practically every day, saying, amid rising anti-Semitism. And we've been talking about this in our newsroom because it's like, how do we define rising? You know, there's, in addition to the, there's all kinds of anti-Semitism. Obviously, we've had these the deadliest attack um, against Jews in American history in Pittsburgh only a few years ago and some other things like that. But, and there's these endless seeming assaults on visibly Orthodox Jews in Brooklyn and other places. But a lot of what we talk about about rising anti-Semitism is also like rhetoric on social media or individual vandalism attacks. And we also have quite a lot more reporting of anti-Semitism by groups like the ADL. Every time a swastika is drawn on a school kid's desk, we count that, you know? Um, and I guess I'm uh, ask you as a historian, I mean, obviously it wasn't that long ago that people were saying anti-Semitic things on the floor of Congress that they would never say now, or that Jews were barred from country clubs and universities and certain housing areas. So how would, uh, t tell me about where we are in the kind of arc of anti-Semitism. Is it really rising right now, or do we just know much more about it? In uh, both. <laughs> um, I think, first of all, we know much more about it because we're more attuned to it. Our antennae are up. I would say the same thing about racism in our country. We're much more aware of certain things because our antennae are up, as they should have been for many years, but, but they are up now sometimes for tragic reasons. Um, but I do think there is a rise. I, I'm, I'm sure there is a rise. Um, and it's not just the Pittsburghs and the Poways um, and the continuous attacks on the streets of Brooklyn 
of ultra-Orthodox Haredi and Hasidic Jews, which, if they were happening two miles north, I guess it would be, in, on, the, on the Upper East Side or Upper West Side, there would be an outcry of unbelievable proportions. But because they're wealthier and more empowered people? Because the, these Jews look different. These Jews are different from the... You know, so I, it allows mainstream it, Jews to sort of, oh, that's not about us. Yeah, that's not about us, or they're, they brought it on themselves. I don't know, you know what it is, but uh, uh, look, we had an incident, one of the first incidents I dealt with, and in fact, I worked with uh, uh, um, Secretary Buttigieg's Mayor Pete, uh, office on this. I wasn't in office more than three days when Lufthansa uh, forbade a 130 passengers, uh, most of whom were Haredi, Hasidic, ultra-Orthodox, uh, from continuing. They were on a flight from JFK to Frankfurt, and they were continuing on to Budapest to go to the to the grave of a rabbi for the yard site. When you're going to the grave of a rabbi for the yard site, you're not going the day before and you're not going the day after. You want to be there on a certain day. So they were flying from um, JFK. They weren't a group. It would be like you had a plane load of people, I don't know, flying maybe to Africa, and there were a lot of... Afri the Texas Tribune Festival, right. for example. Or, but no, but you'd had a lot of Africa. They weren't a group. They all were going to the same place, and they all happened to have the same uh, religious and uh, beliefs, but they weren't a group. They weren't and the traveling. same mode of dress and the that's same... That's right, that's right. So some amongst them um, did not put on their... They, at that point, this was May, Lufthansa still had a regulation that you had to wear a mask. And some of them put it on, but would right away take it off, put it on beneath their nose, put it on their chin, whatever it might be. Not like any of us uh, ever did right, that. None, like none of us have ever done that. Um, and then some, when it came time for Shachrit, for the morning prayer, some gathered, you know, to, to, as, uh, to have a, a minion. And um, uh, the, the pilot, the commander, as he's called in Lufthansa parlance, uh, uh, radioed ahead that this was happening. He let them know if there were any other problems. It began to escalate on the ground. They're, they're pending lawsuits. So, you know, but it just got worse and worse. And what happened was that the, uh, the decision was made on the ground uh, by the ground crew, not the tarmac, but, you know, the, the desk crew, um, that these people wouldn't be allowed to continue on to... Um, on the flight to Budapest. Now, some of them were sitting, let's say, in the front of the plane, and this had happened in the back yeah, so of the So the decision plane. was made that all visibly Orthodox uh, Jews well, would be, I mean... they say it wasn't visible. However, the decision was made, except for a couple... It was not individualized. It was it not. Was, it, was, it was, at the best, unconscious, collective, you know... So I told this to someone, to a Jew, who's very active in the Jewish community, um, uh, uh, and he said to me, and not, not at all traditional in that sense, but his first reaction to me was, well, I hope someone told those Haredi Jews to listen to instructions. So I said, you know, it was maybe six or seven, and you're doing the same thing, yeah. you know? So I think we have to be very careful. When I was before Congress in my hearings, I had to, I had to be, I'm Senate confirmed as an ambassador, um, and uh, I, I, 
made a commitment and, and I, I, sort of, I made a commitment that I would attack anti-Semitism irrespective of where it came from. I, I had the privilege, and I really consider it a privilege, in uh, November of this year to be an expert witness at the trial, the civil trial for Charlottesville, which Dahlia Litwick, your, your friend and professor and expert on the Supreme Court, covered so, so well. Um, as did you. Also the forward. The yes. forward, yes, you did some, <laughs> some great coverage, some great coverage on that. Um, and I was an expert witness on why uh, a, a protest, Unite the Right, had so much Nazi symbolism and anti-Semitic rhetoric, and how this um, coordinated with the racism. I often talk about the interconnectedness of different hatreds. You can't fight hatreds in silo, particularly racism and anti-Semitism um, as it presents today. Um, and uh, you know, I, I feel that I feel that very, very strongly. Um, and I think that the same thing happened yeah. here. You know, that that sort of collective uh, uh, look. Yeah, I want to I want to follow up on that because in, in the, an interview in the, with the New Yorker just this week, um, you described yourself as an equal opportunity defender of Jews attacked as Jews, and you've said that in different ways at your confirmation yes, I, and other things. So, but I want to break it down a little bit because usually when we think about this, we think about there's this anti-Semitism of the far right, of the white supremacist groups that you were just starting to talk about in Charlottesville and other places. There's the anti-Semitism of the left, which we usually think of as sort of anti-Zionism bleeding into anti-Semitism. And kind of relatedly, sometimes Islamic extremism is connected to that. Although we also had, not so far from here in Colleyville, a different example of an Islamic extremist whose anti-Semitism was basically that he thought Jews control the world and therefore could get a terrorist out of jail. Um, but there's this, there are these other buckets that I wonder if you could help us understand more, including the attacks on visibly Orthodox Jews, which is almost always seems to be somebody without ideology. And I think also some of the incidents we hear about, about um, kids in school being bullied and called names or swastikas being drawn on a college campus seem not to be motivated by ideology. And I, I guess I was starting to think about, is this just because when a group is made vulnerable by perhaps those first two growing movements, they then get, that group then is vulnerable to attack kind of in general by disgruntled, unhappy people. I, that's my I theory, think, but I think what do you you're think? absolutely right. You know, when you begin to see someone, you know, when someone is wounded, uh, it becomes, uh, you know, the, the attracts other people, particularly many anti-Semites are cowards. So I'm going to go after the, the weaker amongst them. But the point I was making, and, and you, you re, I just want to reiterate it, I promised I, I, in the Congress that I was, anti-Semitism is ubiquitous. It's a prejudice like other prejudices, Prejudge, don't confuse me with the facts, I've made up my mind. I see a Jew, I know exactly how they are. I see a black person, I know exactly if they're uh, hardworking or not. I see a whatever, a gay person, I know. You, you prejudge. Most prejudice tends to push down. That person is lesser. That if, if those people move into our community, there goes the Jews will not replace us. Jews, but but that's to see. There's the difference. You in, in anti-Semitism, they push down. Jews are dirty. Jews are disgusting. Jews spread COVID. Jews uh, poison the wells. But there's another element which you don't have in other prejudices. You punch up, 
and this goes back to also your question about uh, earlier about the spreading, et cetera. You put, Jews are smarter in an evil, malicious kind of way. Jews are richer, but they use it in, in an evil kind of way. Jews punch above their weight. Protocols of it's, the Elders of Zion. And kind, George Soros. George Soros, yeah. Turner Diaries, all those things. So Jews are to be loathed and to be feared. So you have that element. Um, and I am committed um, to fighting anti-Semitism wherever it comes from. And it comes from all ends of the political spectrum. It comes, as you noted earlier, it comes from Christians, it comes from Muslims, it comes from some Christians, some Muslims, some atheists, some Jews, you know, and, and I don't care where it's coming from. And at the same measure, I don't care who's being attacked. In May, it was Haredi Jews that I was fighting for. In July, when I was in Israel, and a, a group of, uh, there were, a, I think, a bar and a bat mitzvah, or two benot mitzvah and one bar mitzvah at the southern end of the Kotel, and they were attacked by young uh, Haredi, to call them hooligans is, is, is kind, who were, dis who were terrible, and the police were nowhere to be found. I, I spoke out, and I said, if this had happened in any other country, we would have no trouble describing it as anti-Semitism. And right after the Chagim, right after um, the fall holidays, I'm going to Brussels for an EU-sponsored uh, conference on shchita, on ritual slaughter, um, which, is, which some countries are considering banning, which interestingly affects not just Just to be clear, this is the, the kosher slaughter kosher of animals, slaughter, right? A kosher specific. slaughter, but it also affects, affects the Muslim community because halal. So, you know, I don't, if you're being attacked as a Jew... You're there. I'm there. You know, sort of Gal Gadot. <laughs> she did it much more beautifully than I, but, you know... We should get you... Yeah, we'll get you a Wonder Woman yeah, I'm costume. a long way. I've never. That's gone. You know? Is that what you're doing to dress as for Halloween? A Wonder Woman? I don't Woman? think so. Yeah. I don't think so. Um, Purim. You, you're... Staff, when we talked about this event, was like, just make sure you, you know, it's an international job. Ask a lot of questions about, not about the U.S. But, so I want to ask you about why is this job focused on international anti-Semitism instead of domestic? I know, technically, it's because it's a State Department job. It's called the Global Envoy, yada, yada, yada. Um, but I'm wondering if you think that's right. I mean, don't we actually need an anti-Semitism czar to deal with the anti-Jewish hate growing right here in uh, against Jew, you know, against Jews here in like Tennessee, where they banned Art Spiegelman's book, or in Chicago, where a middle schooler was asked as part of an assignment to make a poster with a swastika on it, or it seems like every day, like literally every day, we are trying to make sure there aren't too many items in our morning newsletter about politicians invoking anti-Semitic tropes in their campaigns. So. I mean, I know your job is global, but what about this? Okay, well, first of all, my job is global because uh, when Congress allocates funds, you as a reporter know this, and as someone who's covered the Hill many, for many, many decades and aware of this, when Congress allocates funds to the State Department, they are to be used overseas. And I happen to represent an administration which is very careful about that. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, so my job is outside the boundaries. But uh, we're also very aware, and I spoke to Secretary Blinken about this at a, at a, a, a substantive talk with him, to, and I report directly to him, um, about the, the interlocking, just as you've raised it, between domestic and international. 
Um, and what we're hoping to, um, it's already beginning informally, to have an interagency sort of cooperation that the different agencies, I've spoken with uh, Kristen Clark, who is the Deputy Attorney General, number two to uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland, and her, her job her, is civil rights and domestic issues. And she and I have met twice now, we had a long talk just recently, about how we can be on each other, we, we exchange cell phone numbers. You know, so how something happens in Collegeville, Texas, you know, she can call me and I can, you know, I can't decide policy, but she can talk things through with me. You know, is this, how, how do we understand this? And that kind of thing. In terms of a domestic person, here I'm going to break with some of my friends who think, yes, we need someone domestic. I don't think so. I don't think we want to take it out of the portfolios of the people who fight it. I want the people in justice, or the people in education, or the people in commerce, but certainly, who's, but let's take justice as a, as a better, Department of Justice, whose, whose job it is to look for civil rights violations. I want them to be looking at racism, homophobia, all sorts of sexism, whatever it might be, and anti-Semitism. I don't want them to say, oh, there's the guy over there or the gal over there who's handling anti-Semitism. I think it's very important that it be integrated. Now, why is it separate in part the State Department? Because there was a feeling in the State Department, um, it really, this job has been around since um, the end of Bush II, uh, raised, gotten, and then more developed uh, during the Obama administration under uh, um, Secretary of State Clinton, then Clinton, um, and and Kerry, and then uh, under uh, the uh, Tillerson, and uh, well, not there wasn't someone under Tillerson, but under uh, Secretary of State Pompeo. So it's been been growing in that way. But there was a feeling on the Hill, which established Congress decided that this should be an ambassadorial position, that anti-Semitism, because of its ubiquitous nature, and because of the fact that it was often hard to track and yet was becoming so prevalent in different countries that it should have a separate uh, remit. But I'm very glad to say that I work very closely with Ambassador-at-Large Rashad Hussein, who is our ambassador for international religious freedom, and with uh, Special Representative uh, Desiree Comer-Smith, who has been, been tasked by the secretary with looking at issues of racial justice. Our, our, our foreign policy, is our foreign policy inadvertently hurting a racial minority in a country? We work very closely together. We, we call ourselves the Avengers. Um, and Another we, possible we, forum yeah, costume. Yeah, right, right. We're getting t-shirts. Um, and we include, the, there's someone who handles LBGTQ plus things and, and women's issues, et cetera. Because, but, but especially racial justice, religious freedom, and anti-Semitism. Um, and we're hoping to travel together because, you see, we don't believe that there is a limited bandwidth for attention to these things. Sometimes people feel that if I'm talking about racism, I'm not talking about anti-Semitism. If we're talking about anti-Semitism, what about racism? And uh, we say, no, there's a multiplier effect. And, and you know this so well. Think about the tip-top supermarket killing in Buffalo. That murderer... Um, search the internet for a zip code where he would find the highest proportion of black people to go and kill black people. If you read his so-called manifesto, I don't suggest you do. I did it 
I, I will be your fulfilled your task for you. Because um, it's horrible. It's just horrible. But in it, he talks about the interconnectedness, just like the Charlottesville people did, just like the killer in um, uh, Pittsburgh did, just like the killer in Poway did, in Christchurch did, in Holland, Germany, Yom Kippur, two or three, three years ago, that um, the, this is what they say, it's disgusting. I hope no one comes in now because if they hear me saying this, they say, how'd they let this person into a trip fest? Um, those black people, they're not talented enough, they're not capable enough to be achieving this on their own, to be, uh, uh, you know, have a president to, to achieving the success. There's someone has to be behind it. They're the puppets. Who's the puppeteer? It's the conspiracy theory thinking. Who's controlling them? Who's funding them? Who would have an interest in furthering them in order to destroy the primacy of white Christian culture, even though the, the black people in compression are probably Christian, doesn't, but white culture, white national culture. So you get the two linked and you can't fight, and we understand that uh, Representative Cormer Smith and, and Ambassador Hussein, Muslim, uh, black woman, Jew. I mean, you know, it's like a, it's like International Brotherhood Week when we walk down. Uh, the, Might be the a whole... Saturday Night Live sketch. Yeah, right, right. We have a couple people ready with questions, which is great. I'll just ask you one um, quick and easy one, probably a one-word answer. Um, is anti-Zionism anti-Semitism? <laughs> it depends. It depends. It depends. First of all, what does the person mean by anti-Zionism? So when if somebody it, thinks. There should not be, a, Israel should not be a Jewish state. There's no, there, there should I not think, be an ethnocracy. I think, you know, I think if they, some people said to me, uh, oh, there shouldn't be a Jewish state because it's a theocracy. I said, oh, let's name the other theocracies in the world. You know, I think 22 Muslim states. England. She was the head of the Church of England. And so was her son, you know. Um, so, so. If there's a double standard, suddenly, or someone once said to me, well, Israel uh, displaced the Palestinians. We're not going to get into the debate over the history, and, the, and it's a much more complicated situation. And they displaced the indigenous people, therefore they don't have a right to exist. And I said to them, okay, what about other countries that might have done that? Like the United States of America, or Canada and the First Nation, or Australia and the Aborigines, or New Zealand and the Maoris, you know? And I wasn't saying that made it okay, but if you're- You found a way to if, reckon and reckon grapple and, with that and grapple and maybe not entirely successfully and, and there's much more that needs to be done. But if you're suddenly using this or you're, you, you use anti-Semitic tropes, oh, the Jews are so powerful, or you have cartoons, you know, with uh, 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 a Netanyahu, Trump is his dog, and he's right. Those things have overtly anti-Semitic uh, um, uh, resonances. So I would say in most case, in, in many cases that we're seeing now, that supposedly political argument really has resonance, resonant qualities. But again, it depends. 
Great. Let's take a question from over there. Yeah, I want to get your thoughts on the Ken Burns documentary. Uh, uh, you know, I, I, I think I was great. Uh -huh. <laughs> well, I'm gonna, uh. I was going to ask about this, so I'll just, if, I don't, if you don't mind, I'll piggyback I'm a joking, little. I'm joking, I'm joking. So, of course, you were interviewed in the, in the Ken Burns three-part documentary on PBS that aired this week all about the American role, um, or how America behaved in the Holocaust, I guess is the best way of saying it. I, I wanted to ask you about this of, you know, it's not the first documentary about the Holocaust. Um, it, uh, I wanted to ask you what you think it really adds to our understanding. Who is it for? Why is it significant? Um, uh, among all the things we've seen about the Holocaust, what did you feel was special or different about this? I thought it, first of all, I thought they did a great job. And uh, irrespective of, of my being part of it, I think they really, uh, they worked on this for six and a half years. Um, they would try to be as careful as they can about the history. Uh, Ken Burns is the leading documentarian in America. I mean, who hasn't, you know, you can remember still the resonances of the Civil War documentary or baseball or jazz or Hemingway or so many other things. Um, and he was, as he began to learn more about this topic and, and visited the exhibit at the Holocaust Museum in Washington, the United States Memorial Museum, Holocaust Memorial Museum on Americans and the Holocaust, he was deeply concerned about what he saw about the history of America. And I think it was, it was a real attempt to grapple with that um, and to address it in a, in a, a, a highly, um, an intense way. There's some people that you should have been strong, more critical, too critical. Um, you can always, you can argue in their part. Two parts. viewers, three opinions. Yes, exactly. Um, but I thought it was, I thought it was exceptionally well done. And there's an educational uh, kit that's been prepared to go with it. Um, and I think, you know, I say in, in, that, in that documentary, and I think it's one of the first things I say on, on the program, in the program, is that Every country, every person, every family, every group, and certainly every nation has to recognize both the good things it's done and where it's failed. I mean, you know, uh, the Jews in, in, in the room and in many other places are, we're about to go into the holiest part of the year, which is built on the notion of reflection, reflection on where you did good and reflection where you didn't do so well. And um, I think from that comes growth. And I think that that was, this is, let's look back on what we, there's a lot we have to be proud of of this country. Uh, and a lot we've done that is really um, uh, tremendously impressive. Um, I was just sitting this morning, you, you know the person, the, the editor of the, Tex of the Austin Tribune. Texas Tribune. Texas Tribune, excuse me, Texas Tribune here in Austin, but nationwide. Um, Sul Chan. Sul Chan who is of Chinese origin. Uh, father was born before the communist revolution, uh, was oppressed, eventually went to Hong Kong and came, came here as a un, undocumented and then eventually was documented. Uh, mother came later, working people. He's the ultimate successor, what Harvard? Uh, Stuyvesant, Harvard, uh, Stuyvesant. New York Times, Washington Post, exactly. LA Times, Exactly, and now here. And, it was, you know, this is someone who, who wouldn't have been able to achieve that in the vast majority of other countries. We have so much to be proud of. Looking at what we, where we have failed and where we have had shortcomings, 
It's not a bad thing. When I was appointed, Secretary Blinken, I was being, I was speaking at a conference in New York, and Secretary Blinken was was speaking about me on on video, and he said, you know, we have people like Deborah, and we look at at um, at where we've gone to, to do the kind of job, not because we've got it all right, but because sometimes we get it wrong. So. Get a little, I'll get a little personal now because you teed me up for this question I want to ask you, which is, as you said, this is a time of year. Rosh Hashanah starts on Sunday night. Ten days later, we have Yom Kippur, which is called the Day of Atonement. And, um, is we, my favorite holiday. Interesting. You, can, you could probably work that into this answer, but I want to ask, you know, it is a time where we, we apologize to people in our lives for things we've done wrong. We recommit to trying to do better. We think about where we missed the mark. So what will you be repenting for this year? Ah. <laughs> oh, I, I, you know, a lot. <laughs> um, personal things, family things, you know, other things. But um, I'll be, what I will be doing is expressing deep-seated gratitude. That at this stage in my life, I, I was sitting very pretty. You, you, you have friends. Tenure like this, tenure professor at a large university. Um, I was free. I, I taught my friends, neighbors used to kid that that I called it a full time job. I taught three courses a year. Most of them, two of them, seminars with twelve students. I had assistants to mark papers. I wrote what I want. I wrote books. I traveled. I went, and I took on a job. I have to be in the office five days a week. I've never had such a thing. I. I I had to buy all this clothing, you know? I don't know, you know? Um, Please note, Ambassador Lipstadt's socks. <laughs> Very cool. I do not wear them to work, but I figured Texas Thrifting Fest, right? Thrift Fest. Um, but um, why did I do it? And I had I'd been asked to put my name in, and I decided not to. I said, it's crazy. And someone said to me, a good friend said to me, Deborah, you can make a difference. And the chance at this stage of my career, I've made, you know, the, the lawsuit and fighting Holocaust deniers and things like that, exposing them, but the chance to make a difference, I am overwhelmed with gratitude at that. Over there. Thank you. Uh, thank you for coming to Austin in September when it's still the season of linen. Um, the QAnon conspiracy theory has a lot of resonance with anti-Semitism. And it seems to be spreading internationally, Germany and other countries. Is your office uh, monitoring that or engaging with that in any way? Certainly, uh, we are very much aware of, of its expression overseas and its connection here. That's why when I, when I talk to colleagues who are, whose remit is domestic, we, we, we are aware of it. Um, and it's a, very dangerous, it's a very dangerous kind of thing. Uh, you know, when it's the kind of thing that when I first start working on the topic of anti-Semitism, and I've had great predecessors, people in this job before, but and who did terrific jobs, built up the job, built up the staff, you know, gave it added exposure. I happen to be the first one who comes to it with a 30-year history, maybe more than that, really, of working in this field, and I've long been concerned about about this issue of. Uh, because it's traditional. If you read the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, you know from the late 19th century, a czarist um, forgery. It's the same. It's the same thing. It's just cleaned up a little bit. Um, 
And so I've long been worried about this. I think it's a very serious problem. And uh, when I first started working on this topic, if you wanted to get things, that, the arguments that may, like the QAnon conspiracy or Holocaust denial or what, uh, various and sundry other things, you had to get it sent you know, in a plain envelope to a P.O. box from a P.O. box because it was monitored and post office, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Now you just put it on the internet. And um, I think that that's, that's really, uh, there's, there's a delivery system that we never had before. We all love the internet. We use it all the time. I'm sure many of you have checked it three or four times already today, and you would have done more, except you've been sitting in this session and previous sessions. Um, but but it, it's like a knife. A knife in the hands of an evildoer can take a life. A knife in the hands of a surgeon can save a life. It's how we use it. Right, let's go over to this microphone and then we'll come back. Thanks. Good morning, Ambassador. Thank you for your time uh, today and for all your work. I'm reflecting on my first uh, Rosh Hashanah abroad in, in France and uh, trying to find a synagogue and following behind a few Jews who wore their kippahs underneath a hat to hide their Judaism as they were also uh, headed to synagogue. And I'm curious, what, what does America owe Jews abroad facing anti-Semitism? You know, I often say, if you want to find a synagogue, I was once in Berlin, and I was trying to find a certain synagogue where they did certain cantorial music that my father loved, and I wanted to get there, and they said, it's a little complicated. You walk this way and that way. When you get to the street, there are two ways of identifying the synagogue. Look up and down the street and look for the gendarmes with the machine guns, and you'll know, or follow the men in the baseball caps, because only the only middle-aged men in suits and baseball caps are Orthodox Jews going to shul. And shortly thereafter, I was in Venice, and someone had told me, someone who doesn't keep kosher had told me about a very good kosher restaurant. So if someone who doesn't keep kosher says it's a very, in, in Italy, no less, uh, tells you this is a good, so I was, I was trying to find, I was, of course, completely lost in, in this highways and byways of Venice, and there were three guys in front of me in baseball caps. And I said, I'm following them, they took me right there, so. Um, uh, I think what America, and I don't know what you want to say, owes, but I think that, that America stands for um, certain deep-seated beliefs of equality, of opportunity, and of protection of minorities, and protection of people with practices, with beliefs, with uh, racial tones, whatever it might be, um, that are not often widely accepted. And we can't go in and make laws, and we can't go in and say that, but we can say this is something that is of concern to us. This is something that we see of significance. Or to the government, especially a government that is simpatico, we can say we come in and, and we support you in your efforts. Um, I, I think that that's so, I don't know if O's is the right word, but, uh, I don't think our belief, we can't impose them on others, but I think we stand for something and we have to stand for it here and there's a lot of work to do at home, but we have to stand for it. We have to say we carry those beliefs abroad as well. It's worth noting too that in the last few years, various polls have shown that a third or a quarter of American Jews say they are increasingly afraid to go to a Jewish space or to wear a visible symbol of their Judaism, whether it's a Star of David or a... And that is something that I think we my, think of as 
something that's happening elsewhere, but it's starting to happen here more too. My deputy was telling the story of when he was in when he goes to synagogue with his four year old daughter. He he instinctively looks to where the exits are. Or as some of you who who know my my book on anti semitism. Um, I end with the following story that uh, uh, I have a very good friend. She's now nine, but we've been friends since she was very little. Um, and uh, she's not, she doesn't consider herself very little anymore. Um, and once when she was, I guess, about four years old, I was walking into the synagogue with her and with her mother, and there was a guard outside, a police officer. We just then, it was pre-Pittsburgh. We just had one standing outside. And her mother said to the little girl, uh, Shai, thank the police officer for keeping us safe. And she looked utterly confused because synagogue is her happy place. She gets there in the morning. She separates from her parents, goes, plays around like a maniac in the, in the yard. And then when they have groups, groups are singing and snacks and more singing and more snacks, you know. And then they play some more. And then when the service is over, they go into the main sanctuary. Sometimes they lead Adon Olam. And then the rabbi gives them more sugar. And then they go to the kiddush, <laughs> you know, to the, to the uh, uh, whatever reception, whatever it's called. And there's a room of 200 people. Now, if you went into a room of 200 people with a three-year-old, you'd say, stay by my side. But here, you don't have to. And they line up at the table, and you know they they gorge. They uh, they instinctively know to avoid anything that has the least bit of resemblance to protein, and they just <laughs> chips and whatever and cake and and then they go home and they've had a terrific time. And here's her mother saying to her, "Thank the officer for taking care of us. Why do you need to be taken care of in our happy place?" Fast forward to after Pittsburgh when our you know, as with most synagogues are, now there's a police car and the flight's flashing and there are people in the, in the synagogue who, who assist and are trained. Um, and she saw me walking, we live right next to her, she saw me walking to, to synagogue, so I'm going to go with uh, Tanta Diva, she calls me, I'm going to walk with her. And as we walked in, there was the police officer, one of the police officers, and you know, with kids, you sometimes do that stage whisper, say thank you, as if the person doesn't hear that you just said today. But I said, I was about to say, Shai, say, and I didn't have to. She, seven years old, she looked up at the police officer and she said, thank you for taking care of us. At seven years old, she, had no, she learned that she had to be taken care of, kept safe in the synagogue. It's still her happy place. But it's, it's, an, a different, it's a different story. We're learning that now. That's something that's been true overseas for a very long time. England, France, Germany. I uh, mean, I was in, in uh, Stockholm two, three years, right before the uh, pandemic, as a gust of the government. And I couldn't get into synagogue till I recited, I don't know, the Adon Olam or whatever. I said, I can do more complicated work than that, but that's all the guy knew. So, <laughs> Yes, ma'am. So I was struck by your early comments on identifying anti-Semitism. And there was a New York Times article that probably many people read a couple weeks ago about the New York yeshiva schools and how, the way I read it, that they were very inadequate with the secular education. They were perhaps misusing public funds. Was that anti-Semitic? Um, it was an article not about all yeshivas. There's some very fine yeshivas, including some very fine ultra-Orthodox yeshivas, which do a great job. This was focusing on a number of Hasidic schools uh, where there was a very high failure rate of secular studies. 
Um, and I think that the, the some people and, and and where the the report documented uh, willful ignore, ignoring of state standards around sexual sec, so, secular studies. Yeah, and there are many parents who send their kids to these schools because they're part of that community who are very disturbed by it. So I don't I don't think that. I'm not, I don't think that that can be. I think there are other articles that I sometimes think are, are influenced by that. But um, they weren't all yeshivas, and it wasn't all ultra-Orthodox yeshivas, and um, I think we have to be careful. But, but I mean, it's a, the broader question, right, is if you write, if you write and put, this is a journalism conference, if you write and publish articles that are critical of Jewish leaders, Jewish institutions, a community of Jews, or frankly, any other community, is that somehow suspect? Is no, that I think the, for many in the group, especially if the minority group, that's the, your first right, reaction. bad for the Jews. But you got to look at it closely. I'm very much a believer of not being chicken, chicken little. Was that the one, Dear Me, the Sky is Falling? Um, when I call out something as anti-Semitism, I want it to have the sting of a thousand cuts. And if you call everything out, look, not all criticism of Israel is anti-Semitic. Some criticism of Israel is anti-Semitic. You know, Israeli, you know this, you lived in Israel for quite a while. Um, the national sport in Israel is not not football, it's criticism of the government. <laughs> Um, and if you want to hear, depending who's in the government, you go to Tel Aviv, you hear criticism of the previous government, you go to Jerusalem, now you have criticism of the current government, or wherever. Sometimes governments from 30 years ago. Right, right. They did wrong, you know, et cetera. I just wrote a book on Golda, so that, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but we're close to time, so okay. Like two but more but um, I think you have to be Stage very careful. You can disagree with something. You can say a policy is wrong. You can say it's unfair. Unfair. But sometimes it's anti-Semitic, and sometimes it's. And again, since we're here at the Texas Tribune Festival, I'll just say I think you know commu every community needs mirrors held up against itself, and 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 smart, strong, independent reporting in the public interest, which we do, like this Texas Tribune. Yes, ma'am. I know you've been waiting a long time. No, it's okay. Um, hello, my name is Ashton Jeffers. I am a first-year public history student at St. Mary's University, and as a historian. Um, or as you have been a historian and still are, uh, what advice would you have for other uh, students or those interested in going into history fields or maybe um, taking that uh, discipline and incorporating that into other disciplines as well? God, I love you. Um, <laughs> I think just read. Hey, read as much as you can. I mean, what a go down to the bookstore. I mean, you, if you, some of the books are very expensive. So stand there and read them. You know, um, I don't know if Peter Baker would be so happy, but it's it's a thirty-two. But it's um, and Susan Glasser. Um, but uh, expose yourself to as much as you can. Read different views. Don't believe everything you see on the internet. Ask who's and and with the internet and with books. Who's writing it? And a, a, a serious historian will acknowledge their biases, proclivities, leanings right from the outset. Um, think critically, and we're, 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 we're rooting for you. So. Okay, I'm going to sneak my last one in. Thank you, everybody, for those good questions. Um, I'm going to get personal again. I want to know what is the most anti-Semitic thing that's ever happened to you? 
I want to say the trial in London, because um, that was just rife. That whole attack was rife with anti-Semitism. Um, and I would probably, if I read the comments on my uh, State Department Twitter page or my, sta uh, my other Twitter, I would probably find a lot. But I don't read the comments, you know, uh, and I, I append them. Now I have this great staff, this great team that I work with. They tell me the good ones. But um, <laughs> I was going to actually ask also, has anything anti-Semitic happened to you in this job? Um, I don't, not, not that I can fully discern, not yet, but uh, maybe next year I'll, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I've more, but if it has, it's, it pales, pales in significance that I get to uh, represent our nation. I don't want to sound, you know, motherhood and apple pie and all that, but I get to represent our nation um, and to talk about what we've, where we've gone wrong, but how we might, might we we might do better, and uh, to to speak in in that name, knowing I have the the real strong support of not just many colleagues at the State Department, but of a Secretary of State who, when he was appointed, when he was named by then President Elect uh, Joe Biden in Delaware in his op in his speech, I think he was the first appointment. Um, as traditionally the State Department, uh, Secretary of State is, he talked about the fact that his stepfather, Samuel Pizar, was a survivor of the Holocaust, and he was hiding in the forest towards the very end, and he saw a tank with a five-pointed white star come by, and an American soldier with his head out and told him he was free. Um, that's who your Secretary of State is. Um, and, and there are many other colleagues without that background who feel strongly about this. Anti-Semitism is not just a threat to Jews. It's certainly a threat to Jews, and that would make it reason enough to fight it. But it's a threat to the democratic values we hold so dear. There has never been a country that, certainly a democratic country, which allowed anti-Semitism to foster and, and survived as a democratic country. There's a, a, anti-Semitism is a conspiracy, and I'll, I'll end with this sentence, engenders distrust in media. The Jews control the media, the Jews control the courts, the judges, the finances, the, the, the elections, the whatever. Once you distrust those institutions, democracy is on a downhill slide. Anti-Semitism is the canary in the coal mine. Thank you, Ambassador, and thank you all for coming. Um, I will close with what I'm sure everyone at the Texas Tribune Festival is closing all their sessions with. Shabbat Shalom and Shana Tova. May you have a sweet and happy Jewish New Year. Thank you.